Welcome back, guys. Let's get back to Troponins and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, unstable Angina. Come on, Steve. We need more of an intro than that. Well, you apparently won't let me sing My Heart Will Go On, nope. and Shreya <laughs> says I can't do any more random movie references. Okay, fine. So, for anyone that missed our last episode, we suggest listening to it now. Someday we'll probably release one where the puns and movie facts are edited out, but for now you'll have to suffer through it. Or for some of you, maybe we'll have more edited in. <laughs> Torture. Just a thought, Janine. No, 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 no. Okay, so we'll give you a quick second to check out our last one. And long enough? Great. So welcome back for those of you that went back to part one, puns and all. Last time we talked about key concepts in ACS or acute coronary syndrome, like what is unstable angina and why the heck should we care? More specifically, we covered why we like to talk about and use the Timmy score. Along with the awesome carrots 65 mnemonic. No more mnemonic, Steve. Okay. We also <laughs> talked about how we use scores like Timmy to determine if a patient with unstable angina is at high or low risk of MI or death. So today we're going to quit playing games with the heart score and let us show you the shape of the heart. Okay, no Backstreet Boys today, please, Steve. Words never heard in any civilized society. <laughs> but seriously, I thought that we could talk a little bit more about Pathophys today. Anything but your singing, Steve. It's <laughs> hurtful. Why would you say oh, no. <laughs> You can sing all you want. Keep going. No, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. Welcome to Mind the Gap. And our second episode on unstable angina. Again, many thanks to Dr. Norma Keller, Chief of Cardiology at Bellevue Hospital and Assistant Professor of Medicine at NYU for peer-reviewing this episode while on vacation. And don't forget to check out our brand new CoreIM website, coreimpodcast.com, for tons of great med-ed tools and podcasts. What a smooth shout-out to Foam. <laughs> Today, we're going to take our conversation about unstable angina to the next level. We're going to cover, one, why is it important to interview our patients about the history of their chest pain, and how does it relate to pathophysiology in unstable angina? And number two, how have high-sensitivity troponins changed the way we think about ACS? And finally, number three, how can we use both clinical history and pathophys to risk stratify our patients and determine management? You think there's a score for that? Good question, Steve. All right. So, Steve, I know you like to take deep dives into history. Are we going to do that today? Well, I am so glad you asked, Janine, because we can't talk about unstable angina without talking about Dr. Eugene Bronwald, who wrote tons of super important articles on unstable angina. It's important to note that when he wrote about unstable angina in Steve's favorite decade, the 1990s, what else? he used it as a catch-all term, including both patients with positive biomarkers, what we now call NSTEMIs, and patients with negative biomarkers, what we now call UA. And so in that context, Brownwald published a seminal article in circulation called Unstable Angina, a Classification. And this continued a decades-long journey, which we will now try to summarize into a description of pathophysiology and clinical syndromes in about five minutes. <laughs> but actually... Brownwell tried a few ways of categorizing patients to figure out who was high risk of MI and death based on clinical history and pathophysiology. As a tie-in to our last episode, Brunwald and his group, the Timmy Group, quantified this risk in the UAN STEMI Timmy score. So today, we'll first go through the clinical histories, and then we'll connect them to the pathophys. We recommend checking out our graphic on the CoreIM website for you to follow along. Brunwald describes three types of chest pain severity. 
basically three different types of histories you might hear from a patient coming here with chest pain. But we really actually only care about two of them. So the first type of chest pain is new onset or worsening anginal symptoms, but no chest pain at rest. This is sometimes called crescendoing angina. Brownwald later connected these symptoms to the pathophys of progressive mechanical obstruction, which is from what he called severe organic luminal narrowing, such as progression of coronary atherosclerosis. Which, depending on the clinical context, can either be slowly progressing, like in the course of weeks to months. Progressive, stable angina. Or it can be rapid in onset, like the closure of an already critical lesion, causing an MI. Yikes. The second type of chest pain is angina at rest within the past 48 hours. A.K.A. the The danger danger zone. This corresponds to the pathophys of non-occlusive thrombus that develops on pre-existing disrupted plaques. It's partially occlusive, so not a full STEMI, which is caused by a complete thrombotic occlusion. But just to be clear, we are not covering two types of the pathophys that Brunwald included in his original classification. Those are dynamic obstruction like Prince metal angina and demand type anginas like type 2 MI from inflammation or infection. And you also may have noticed we omitted the third clinical syndrome of chest pain, which is chest pain at rest that resolves at least 48 hours before presentation. That's because it doesn't really fall into the definition of ACS. Because it's just not acute. So back to those two clinical syndromes and pathophys is, you might be wondering now, well, why do they matter? Don't both lead to cardiac ischemia and wouldn't that just be just generally bad? Well, Brownwald's argument was that slowly progressing plaque causing crescendoing angina was somewhat more steady and predictable. Whereas chest pain at rest from a non-occlusive thrombus on a disrupted plaque is unpredictable and therefore more dangerous. It can clot off at any time, causing total occlusion or STEMI. These two different pathophyses also look different on cardiac catheterization. There's a really interesting study called coronary plaque disruption that gets right at this. You have a study for everything, Steve. I do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) So they looked at patients who suffered an MI, but actually got a cath beforehand. A third of them had preceding obstructive coronary disease at the site of their MI, meaning that their infarction was probably due to rapidly progressive luminal narrowing of their known obstruction. The remaining two-thirds had only mild CAD on their previous cath. So their MIs were probably due to unpredictable rupture of that small but vulnerable plaque. Oh, how sad and lonely. (laughs) Oh, they're just misidentified and misunderstood, Steve. Nice. So let's get even nerdier and go back to our basic science days. I remember getting tortured by discussions of two types of thrombus, Janine. You may have heard these called red thrombus for fibrin-rich and white thrombus for platelet-rich. Oh, the nightmares are coming back. (laughs) In progressively worsening atherosclerosis, we see a thick fibrinous cap on a growing plaque. This is called red or fibrin-rich thrombus. In acute plaque rupture, we'll more likely see a vulnerable plaque with a thin immature cap covered by white or platelet-rich thrombus. It's like a teenager going through its awkward growing pains. It's young and it doesn't know any better. (laughs) So we've now given you two classifications of chest pain with their presentations, pathophys, and plaque or thrombus type. The prior study we discussed with pre-MI caths found that there was a two-to-one ratio of plaque rupture versus progressive luminal narrowing. This is relatively close to what Brunwald reported seeing at the clinical level based on patient symptoms. And patients with plaque rupture are more likely to be sick. Brownwald found that one-third of these patients will present with positive troponins, so active ischemia. Compare this to only 10% of patients with crescendoing angina. So symptoms and underlying pathophysiology correlate. How cool. Super cool. Yeah. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, 
it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. But briefly, here's one thing to consider. With both of these pathophysiologies, because you get some occlusion of the coronary artery, you should probably get some myocardial ischemia. So in this day and age, you'd expect that an ultra-sensitive troponin would be positive. So you're saying that all of these patients would now be classified as NSEMIs? So that's what I thought. But interestingly, there still seems to be a subset of patients with classic symptoms of ACS that for whatever reason don't have a positive troponin, even despite cath findings that are consistent with coronary artery occlusion. So Brunwald addressed this exact dilemma in his 2013 article with David Morrow, aptly titled, Unstable Angina, Is It Time for a Requiem? But it's really good. Brownwald and Murrow described the trajectory of unstable angina. Initially, it was meant to represent the zone between stable angina and MI. But over time, as we became better and better at detecting troponin, more cases got reclassified as NSTEMI instead of unstable angina. So the percent of patients with ACS who fall in the bucket of unstable angina has shrunk significantly. They almost suggest that in the future, we might discuss removing the diagnosis of unstable angina altogether. To paraphrase the paper's conclusion, quote, We have now come full circle in our definition of symptomatic ischemic heart disease. Patients with ischemic heart disease will now be divided into the original two groups, angina pectoris and acute MI. Some cardiologists even propose that maybe cardiac markers might become the only definition for ACS going forwards. But it's very unlikely. So combining our quantitative tests with our qualitative clinical history is still pretty darn important. We should be clear. We are not saying flat out that unstable angina doesn't exist. We're just enjoying these debates. Yep, nerd fights. (laughs) The rise in high-sensitivity troponin should just make us think twice when we meet people with chest pain syndromes but negative troponins. So let's bring this home, Steve. Great. All this pathophys and troponin stuff aside, what do we actually do with the patient in front of us? Should we page cardiology in the middle of the night and ask them to urgently take the patient to the cath lab? Definitely. Wake up all of your cardiology fellows. <laughs> Sorry, friends. What if we re-stratified patients and use that to guide our decision-making? Much better idea. I bet we can make a score out of that. So let's circle back to the Timmy score from our last episode, which we apply to patients with unstable angina or NSTEMI to estimate their risk of major adverse cardiovascular outcome or MACE in the next 14 days. What we haven't mentioned yet is how we're going to use it to guide clinical management if we want a cath. So it turns out patients with moderate to high risk, so Timmy scores of three points or higher, may actually benefit from urgent cardiac cath. This comes from the Tactics Timmy trial, brought to you by who else but Dr. Bronwald's Timmy Group. 
which randomized about 2,200 patients to early cath or not. The control group still got cathed if they didn't improve on medical therapy alone, or if they had a positive stress test. Both groups got treated with antiplatelet and cholesterol-lowering medications. The trials showed that patients who got early catheterization had better primary outcomes of death, MI, or rehospitalization for ACS in 30 days. Remember, the combined outcome is also called MACE. The MACE rate was 7.4% in the test group versus 10.5% in the control group, which equals an absolute risk reduction of 2.1%. Nice. Good math. And this effect persisted at six months with MACE rates of 16% versus 19%. Weirdly enough, this was all driven by MI and rehospitalization outcomes. The mortality rate actually didn't differ that much between the two groups. And also interesting is that just because patients got cathed, it doesn't mean they actually got revascularized. Only 60% of patients in the intervention group got a stent or a cabbage versus 36% in the control group. It's important to note that there was only one subgroup that didn't show a benefit from early revascularization compared to control. That was actually the 25% of the study population that had negative troponins and fell into our favorite gray zone of unstable angina. Just to make a note, this was particularly true for women. This group had no clear improvements in outcomes with early cardiac cath. And for these folks, you know, people with UA, the study suggests performing a stress test after stabilization to help determine if their chest pain really was from coronary occlusion. If not, they're probably not going to benefit from any revascularization. To summarize, the Timmy score is a tool to identify high and low risk groups, aka those who benefit from rushing to the cath lab in the first 48 hours versus getting a stress test for more information first. But full disclosure, the AHA guidelines actually suggest using the GRACE score instead of the Timmy score. Wait, what? Yup. I feel betrayed. <laughs> Timmy, you were worthless after all. <laughs> no, no, we're just using it because we figured we're all more familiar with the Timmy score from our last episode. It's just a good example to make our point about risk stratification. So that's it for today. So let's recap. We reviewed a few different angles through which you can view unstable angina. Number one, clinical symptoms correlate to pathophysiology, cath findings, and even outcomes. A patient with slowly worsening atherosclerosis and progressive anginal symptoms is lower risk than a patient with unstable, disrupted, vulnerable plaque causing angina at rest. <laughs> Two, high sensitivity troponins may completely change how we think about classifying ACS. But we're not there yet, so we're going to keep unstable angina around just for now. Just know that most patients who would previously have had UA are probably not being called NSTEMIs. And number three, in our last episode, we talked about how quantitative scores can help you decide who not to cath. But both the Timmy and heart scores can also be used to anticipate who might benefit from revascularization. Patients classified as moderate or high risk should have some benefit from early cardiac catheterization, whereas low-risk patients probably aren't. You know, at least based on the tactics Timmy trial. Those low-risk patients, mostly patients with unstable angina, should get a stress test after they're stabilized to risk stratify them further. So that actually is all for today on our podcast. See you next time. If you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use. It helps other people find us and lets us know how we're doing. So follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can also send an email to hello at coraimpodcast.com, all one gigantic word. As always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institution. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care.
and fell into our favorite gray zone. Like <laughs> really at me. It's like, what did I do wrong? Can't make you listen to this on the recording. Have a pretzel, Steve. No. <laughs> I know, right? Take a cab home. Never again. (laughs) At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 